Let's turn together, please, to Psalm 133. Before we begin today, uh, I want to tell you that uh, Rick is going to be on vacation this next week. Um, Rest is a good thing, right? It's an important component of the way God made us. God rested. It's an interesting teaching of the scriptures. Uh, Rest is not just a result of the fall because we're tired of working the thorns and thistles of the ground. God rested and established this pattern in creation before there was any sin. So it is good that we find rest. I am not God. You are not God. And if our own God set for us a pattern of rest, how much more should we very dependent creatures find regular patterns of rest? So I'm glad that our pastor gets to do that. And uh, I encourage you to pray for him that it would be restorative time for him and for his family. We are going to read and meditate upon and hopefully expose the truth of this short but very profound psalm. It is one of the shortest psalms. It is only three verses. And for those of you who have a sermon time algorithm in your head, it won't work today. This may be, and this is probably hyperbole, probably an overstatement, this may be the most important sermon I have yet preached here in our newly merged church. We have touched on these themes at times, but this psalm in particular allows us to peel the curtain back just a little bit and consider how we are doing as a merged church, what implications God's covenant love for his people most especially revealed to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, how it speaks to us in the way that we live together. It's an interesting psalm because it comes at this concept of unity among God's covenant people, not a common theme in the psalms. It truly is a bit more naturally a new covenant kind of theme spelled out frequently in the words of Jesus and through the pens of the apostles. One of the beautiful things about this approach to this subject of unity among God's covenant people, sometimes the scriptures come at it negatively. In other words, here is what you are doing, here is why it is destructive, and here is what you should do instead. Psalm 133 comes at it purely positively. In fact, we could say that Psalm 133 puts in front of us, perhaps more than any other passage of the Scriptures, the beauty of covenant unity. And so, as we will see, I hope, as we work through the three verses of this psalm, we will see the surprising joy of covenant unity. Psalm 133 is one of what we call the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, 15 Psalms, comprise what we call the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were used by pilgrims journeying toward Jerusalem 
as the law called them to in the three highest feasts of the year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And three times a year, the people of Israel were to travel up to Jerusalem, even if they were in the northern part of the country, they were to go southward toward Jerusalem, but you always went up to Jerusalem even if you were in the northern part of the country because Jerusalem sat in an elevated plain. So these Psalms of Ascent are metaphorical Psalms which teach us that we are going up together to worship God. This Psalm in particular, this Psalm of Ascent is ascribed to David. David well knew what it was like to suffer the consequences of disunity. Consider David's life. At the beginning of David's life as a public figure after the slaying of the the giant Goliath, he was brought into Saul's court and became fast friends with Saul's son Jonathan, the heir apparent to the throne. But tension arose because the people were enthralled with what God had done through David, and Saul was bitterly jealous. David had to flee the court. If you remember, Saul was so angry at him that he threw a javelin and tried to kill him while he was playing his harp. Not exactly safe working conditions. So David scurries around the country, even going to Philistia, acting like a madman to preserve himself from Saul's pursuit. Saul had a bloodlust to slay this rival to his throne. Because of this, this estranged David from his family, from his homeland, and from his best friend. Later, through David's own sin and his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, he lost a son. The height of disunity, death is. Another son of his, Absalom, sought to lead a coup against him. David had to leave the city. Civil war broke out in his own family. Later, whenever David died... And Solomon was placed on the throne by God's prophetic command. Another of his sons, Adonijah, was killed for his own sinful rebellion. And it only took one more generation after Solomon for the kingdom to be torn in two to this day. David, a man after God's own heart, knew what it was like to suffer the bitter consequences of disunity. It is as though he went in and out of this all of the time. And so perhaps in a highly idealized way, David writes to the pilgrims who will travel up to Jerusalem to worship God at these important and high festivals about the beauty of unity. Perhaps it was a point in time where David had experienced great unity. When the kingdoms were brought together not too long after David was coronated king 
It could have been then when the ark was brought up to Jerusalem and all the people were once again unified. All the sons and daughters of Jacob were at one time unified under David's reign. Perhaps it was a situation like that. So whether it was hypothetical that David longed for this because he had experienced the bitter disunity of so many events in his life, even those most close to him, or perhaps it was a point in time where David had experienced the actuality, the experiencing of of real unity, David pens this psalm. We have experienced this in our lives at times. Sadly, some of us have gone through our own bitter experiences of disunity in churches. Is there anything more, more sad and more soul-crushing than to have people that you have loved and poured into torn apart by division? Have you ever experienced that? You never quite get over that. It makes you skittish. It makes you gun-shy. It makes you wonder when the next event will come and tear the honeymoon phase apart. Some of you experience this in your own families. This very day, you are estranged from a child or a mother or a father, or you have experienced the tragedy of divorce. And even still, the echoes of that bitter disharmony are still with you. Angry words, harmful actions, the betrayal of lost trust. Likewise, some of us have experienced the beautiful reality of broken relationships coming back together, of marriages restored, of prodigals found, of churches healed. On a more microcosmic level, we experience this often in the, the normal routines of life. And so this isn't rhetorical. I want you to interact with me a little bit. How many of you have had a fight with your spouse within the last month? The rest of you were lying. It's hard, right? If I've just broken, if some more fights are breaking out right now, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Maybe for some of you, they're really fresh. We've all experienced that. Is there anything worse than being disunited from your spouse? I hate it. There have been a few nights in our marriage where one of us has slept in another room. It's agonizing. It was always my fault. But is there anything better? Is there anything better than when forgiveness is humbly asked for and received? When that which is broken, perhaps even temporarily, is brought back together? There's nothing quite like that. And as we will find as we work through this psalm and see its, its Christ implications, the implications of, of the work of Jesus we will be reminded that that's exactly what the gospel proclaims to us. That we who were sons and daughters of disobedience, 
children of wrath, God's mortal enemies, that He pursued us through His own Son, that that the second person of the Trinity was willing to suffer temporary orphanhood to make you and me sons and daughters for eternity? That's the very heart of what we believe, my friends. And David, perhaps even better than he knew, pens for us this short but profound psalm that pilgrims journeying up to worship God together could sing. Imagine that. You're coming down from Nazareth, Antioch, maybe far-flung places, Tarsus, Rome. And you see along the road a pilgrim, a fellow traveler, a fellow worshiper, weak and wearied, struggling with the normal stuff of life, And perhaps last time you all got together in Jerusalem for the feast, you fought over the lamb that you wanted to buy for the Passover feast. Or the room in the inn in the outskirts of Jerusalem that you wanted to stay in. Or words of gossip or slander that you spoke about this pilgrim got back to them and and you've heard through channels that that person found out and And at best, when you see them traveling on the road, you feel awkward, if not completely ashamed. But there's a psalm for weary pilgrim travelers who have sinned against each other, who have experienced the disharmony of their own sin and the sin of others. And we, weary pilgrim travelers, as we're traveling toward our eternal rest and eternal, peaceful, unbroken relationship with God and with each other, there is hope for us in the Scriptures. And so, with all of that in mind, please follow along as I read God's Word to us, Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May God bless to us the reading of His holy word. As we have come together as two separate churches into one, we have learned that if this is going to really work, that we have to lay some rights down. And that's hard. We've had to learn to sing songs we didn't sing before. We've had to learn to listen to sermons that we hadn't heard before. We've had to learn to submit to leadership decisions that we maybe don't fully understand or even fully agree with. Laura's going to put on the screen behind me a picture of a church. On the left is an old two-story building, and on the right is a single-story building. This is the same, the same edifice, the same building. 
I don't know exactly when the first picture was taken. I would guess sometime after the turn of the 20th century. That church is in Peloton, Kentucky. Have you ever heard of Peloton, Kentucky? Other than my niece, none of you have heard of Peloton, Kentucky. It's, it's hard to find on a map. It's in Adair County, Kentucky, way down in south central Kentucky. It's God's country. I spent a lot of my time there as a young child on my grandparents' tobacco farm. I have some of my fondest memories of that. But this church was built sometime, I think, in about the 1870s. It was built by one of my great, 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 some amount of greats, grandmother, for my great, 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 great something grandfather. He was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher. And so once a month, he would come to Peloton. The other three weeks of the month, he would go to other communities. This was a Methodist church, but a gospel-preaching church. And she was a relatively wealthy lady and was able to raise the funds to build this building so that her son, the circuit-riding preacher, would come to Peloton and preach the gospel to the congregation at least once a month. I assume that, that lay leadership helped out the other three weeks. In fact, that grandfather of mine is buried in the family cemetery in Peloton, and as was often the case for Methodist preachers back in the day, there's a little round plaque on his uh, very faded headstone of a circuit-riding preacher. And I loved that story as a child because there's lots of uh, ministry background for my family. You'll notice that on the front of the church, there are two doors. I won't pose for you a, a quiz or a question, but the reason for that was so that the men could go in one side and the women could go in the other side. And it was probably the case that the men actually sat on one side and the women sat on the other side. After a period of time, uh, they tore down the top floor and sent the, the, uh, the materials elsewhere, built another building, and then the, the single-story building is standing to this day. Back in the 1950s, when my father still lived in south-central Kentucky, he and my grandfather, one of the most dear men I have ever known, went to this little building during a revival and were both converted on the same evening. So this church, which is no longer in use, has now been purchased by my family, and it just sort of stands there in disrepair. But it's precious to us because of what God has done there. But what stands out to me most about this building are those two doors. We have different entrances around our building, but that's just because we need different points of egress and so forth. This was profound and, and purposeful why they built two doors. That would never fly today, right? But it was common back then, and perhaps, and it's fair to say, a more patriarchal kind of society. We've made some good progress over time. But this speaks to me. This image speaks to me. There's two different entrances for two different people, two different people groups, in this case, male and female. If we're not careful, and this is why I think it connects to our story here at Berlin Church, if we are not careful, we will be a two-doored church. Be former Berlin people and North Point people. Different tastes, different heritages, perhaps different theological perspectives different groups of people clamoring for influence, more concerned about comfort than we are concerned about the glory of Jesus being enjoyed and made known. And my friends, that can't be. 
We are to be a people that are commonly united, that come through the one door, the door to the sheepfold, Jesus Christ, treasuring him supremely, being willing to lay down our rights for the good of another because of the beauty of unity, what it proclaims about what Jesus has accomplished and what we are calling people to. According to this psalm, unity is something that God gives us as a gift. It comes down from above. But it is something that we must purpose to maintain. The first thing I think that we see, I want to just give you two observations. The first thing I think we see in this text is that there is unique beauty and goodness in the unity of God's covenant blessing stirring our souls with hope. There is unique beauty and goodness in the unity of God's covenant blessing stirring our souls with hope. Now let me just say here at the beginning that if at any point we don't preach to you the gospel, If we give up on first-order doctrines, you should raise a stink. You should never put up with that. We are to hold fast to the central tenets of our faith. Moreover, our leadership should be characterized by, by integrity, by holy morality, by love, and if at any point our leadership fails to live up to these holy standards, you, you must stand up to us. But far too often in our experience, the things that disunite us, the things that bring disharmony into our experience are not the first order things. They are secondary and even tertiary matters. Matters of preference, matters of personal comfort. And as David writes to these pilgrims, David who was well acquainted with the bitterness of disunity and longed for the glorious beauty of unity, he writes to pilgrims like us traveling together and says, unity is a gift of God to be enjoyed and maintained. You'll notice that he says it is good and pleasant. And the idea here is that, that David, who was a master psychologist, had, as we've already established, experienced the, the bitterness of disunity, but when he had experienced the beauty of, of unity, it stuck with him. And there is something inside of us. There is something inside of us as those made in the image of God that longs for harmony with our Creator vertically and with one another horizontally. And it is super striking if you were to explore the fall of humanity that God not only spoke words of cursing, the consequences of the brokenness of their relationship with Him, but also very quickly He tells Adam and Eve, you are going to suffer the consequences of the brokenness of relationship with each other. And it's only one short chapter later in Genesis chapter 4 that their first two offspring get into a mortal fight and the elder slays the younger. It didn't take long. And ever since, my friends, we have been suffering the consequences of disunity. 
David himself, as we've already said, had experienced this in his own life. And as the covenant leader in so many ways of God's covenant people, he speaks to them of the gift of experiencing unity together and and how important that was as they came up together to Jerusalem for these feasts. But how important for us, we who come together today and and weekly and a lot of us more than once a week together to worship the one true God through His Son, Jesus. David likens the beauty of this unity to two separate things, two images. The first is oil, which was used to anoint Aaron. If you don't mind, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 30. God took the consecrating, the anointing of His priests, and in this case, the high priest, Moses' brother Aaron, very, very seriously. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 30, verse 22, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250 and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings, with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil. Throughout all your generations, it shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. It was uniquely for God's people and even uniquely for the great high priest who made intercession for the people who were constantly sinful. Why does David pick up this metaphor? David, in a sense, is saying to the pilgrims traveling together, experiencing their own bitterness of disunity, longing as image bearers for restoration with those that they loved, that God was going to make them holy and mark them off as holy through their unity. Or to put it more simply, we display the wonder of who God is by the way that we experience unity together. It gets to the very fabric of who God is. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. There is eternal unity in the Godhead. And He gave us the gospel to reunite us to Himself and to each other. And when we live in unity with one another, we proclaim the holiness of God. And though this holy oil was reserved for Aaron, it is as though we all experience the wonder of its anointing beauty, us common people, 
whenever we are unified together. It was a fragrant oil. And it was given in abundance. God gave it to Israel to show that He favored them. In Genesis chapter 27, Isaac thinks he's blessing Esau, but he is blessing Jacob by God's design. And he says to his son as he was treacherously tricking him, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, which reminds us of the second metaphor that David gives us in Psalm 133. It is not just like the abundant oil pouring down on Aaron's beard, so abundant that it actually got on his clothing, so fragrant that it stood out. You remember being an eighth grade boy, some of you guys? When I was an eighth grade boy, I realized, probably too late, that I needed to shower every day. When I was in eighth grade, I I was on the wrestling team. And there is nothing more stinky than an eighth grade wrestler. But I had a favorite t-shirt. And I used to wear it to school a couple times a week because I thought it was really cool. But I also practiced in it. And it would sit in my locker. I would forget it occasionally. And I'd go to school and I would be reminded of my favorite t-shirt. But it was just horrible. I mean, it reeked. It was rancid. It needed to be burned. But I'd stick it in my backpack, which, of course, by touching made my backpack stink. But I would go home, but I knew that if I stuck it in the hamper, it wouldn't be washed till the next week, because my mom always did laundry on the same exact day. To this day, she still does laundry on the same exact day. But I would want to wear it. And so I would take my Dracar Noir, which was one of my Christmas gifts, this perfumed cologne that had been given to me by my mother, and I would spray my gray T-shirt thinking that it would mask the rancid smell that had accumulated to it through many hours of wrestling practice. Nobody was fooled. This abundant oil that was poured down on on Aaron's beard to the point that it actually spilled onto his clothing was a fragrant reminder to all who watched the consecration of the high priest in a beautiful and alluring sense that God was among them. But, but not just this metaphor of verse 2, but, but the second metaphor, metaphor of verse 3, that the dew of Hermon, sounds a whole lot like what Isaac promised Jacob. Mount Hermon was a mountain in the northern part of Israel. It's between nine and 10,000 feet above sea level, I believe. It's one of the places in Israel, some of you I know have been to Israel, probably been to the slopes of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is one of those places in Israel which doesn't feel like what you think Israel should feel like. It's green, it's verdant, it's beautiful. There's actually snow on top. In the morning as the night air cools and the water condenses, it falls in the morning as dew. It has been said that if you camp on the slopes of Mount Hermon that you wake up and your, your tent is so wet that it feels like it rained at night. Mount Hermon's important for it feeds the Jordan River, which flows southward, holy to Israel. But the region of Jerusalem, the place that the pilgrims would have been traveling up to, is very arid, and to this day it is. And most of the year it especially is. 
Very little can grow there unless it is irrigated. David is saying something profound here. For those who had had the privilege, these pilgrims, perhaps they had come from the region of Hermon, for those who had had the privilege of seeing Mount Hermon, they would have experienced the, the abundance of God's blessing. Vineyards, fields growing on Mount Hermon's slopes. But, but if you lived around the environs of Jerusalem or were traveling to Jerusalem, particularly during the seasons of drought, you would have said, is God's blessing here? David is saying something profound. It is as though when God blesses his people with unity, it is like the fragrant, abundant oil that is poured out on the consecration day when the high priest is set apart to God. And it is like the dew of Hermon, which not just northern Israel gets to experience, but it is as though that same dew, which geographically and by weather patterns is impossible, had gone southward and brought the desert to life. We won't take time to turn here today. I encourage this for further study. Shortly before Moses dies and Joshua leads the people into the promised land, they receive the law once again, this new generation who will populate Canaan. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses speaks to the people in the beginning verses, words of blessing. In the ending verses, words of cursing. Here's the point. If you will honor me, if you will keep my covenant, I will bless you. I will bless you with with abundant oil, like the oil poured out on Aaron's beard. I will bless you with, with rains from heaven, which will take care of your crops so that you can feed those that you love. These prophecies of cursing and blessing came true in Israel's experience. In Haggai the prophet, chapter 1, God says to the prophet, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. When Israel was unfaithful, God withheld blessing from them. But God promised that it wouldn't always be like this. And so he says to them in Hosea chapter 14, a prophecy of God calling out Israel for their spiritual adultery, but promising them covenant renewal. God says in Hosea 14, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. When God blesses his people with unity, 
It is like oil being poured out on the day of consecration for Aaron. It is like dew falling on places which had never experienced it, bringing dead things to life. And it is at the heart of the gospel. Which is why our Lord says in his high priestly prayer of John 17, I do not ask for these only, the disciples who heard him praying, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, which was way more profound than we understand. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Which reminds us a lot of Psalm 133, verse 3, the end. For there, and the place that God dwells with his people, which formerly was Zion, Jerusalem, now through Christ there is no more need for a temple. For wherever God's people are, he is there. And through Christ, he has commanded the blessing, life forevermore, reunion with our God and reunion with one another. And what Jesus is praying for always comes true. The Father always delights in answering the prayers of the Son. And he has shown us through this, through this challenging but beautiful merger that he is in this, that it's about the gospel. It's about us treasuring Jesus supremely and loving each other uncommonly, being willing to lay down what we so deeply individually treasure in our heritage and our personal preferences for the good of another. And, and the primary question that we have asked ourselves through this merger process is this. Can we do mission better together than apart? What is our mission? Our mission is to treasure Jesus supremely and to make him known. And as churches, we answered that question affirmatively. We can make more of him together than apart. So Jesus' prayer has been answered here. We are experiencing the uncommon unity of the very Godhead. Is it always perfect? Is it always easy? And the answer is no. But is it worth it? The answer to that, I believe with all my heart, is yes. But how will we maintain it? Covenant unity is fragile and elusive, calling us to be gospel fluent and postured graciously toward one another. And you'll have to come next week to hear the rest. You may wonder how we can get two sermons out of three verses, but you'll find out. I'm encouraged by what God has given to us through David's pen. The beauty of unity. Next week, we are going to talk about the fragility and the elusiveness of unity. 
And we're going to explore what it looks like to develop gospel fluency and what it looks like to be postured graciously toward one another so that we can be aware of the fragility and elusive nature of unity and for the glory of Jesus and for the good of one another, pursue this together. So I hope you'll come back. I look forward to exploring this more with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that by the power of your Spirit, for the good of your people, that we would, we would get a taste of what it is that you have done and are doing among us. That the unity that you have created here would be like a fragrant blessing to us. That we would see things that formerly felt dead or lifeless coming back to life surprisingly. So I pray that in the coming moments that we spend together before we depart from one another, and in the coming days before we come back together and consider these truths more fully, that you would, you would cause us to notice what you have done, that we would take great delight in what you have done and what you are doing, that we would give you thanks. So we give you thanks. In a world which is so commonly characterized by division and schism and disunity, and sadly, even in our churches, we are grateful for what you have done and are doing here. Thank you for, for giving us people who are willing to lay down their rights, who are willing to prefer one another more than themselves, who are learning to love people that they're just meeting, who are learning to make much more of Jesus than they are of their own agendas. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. It is beautiful and it is uncommon. And we pray that for your glory and for our joy that you would only increase this and that you would, you would cause us to be like a city set on a hill that is a beacon to those who have only experienced the bitterness of disunity and you would draw them to yourself that they would be compelled by what you are doing that the gospel of the Lord Jesus would enter into their minds and hearts and that they would become worshipers with us together. So do all these things, we pray, and more for the glory of Jesus and for our mutual good. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.